Only a butt. <laughs> oh, hello. Welcome to episode 86 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Joined as always by Mary, a woman who was disappointed to learn that the Battle of Brandy Station was not fought over a bottle of Hennessy. I am merely a smashed bottle named Darren. How are you, Mary? What's going on? Oh How goes the battle? It's going well. And I mean, speaking of battles, we are basically doing a continuation of what we did last week. We're going to stay with the horses. We're going to talk about some more battles here yeah. in a second yep. with Calvary. But since I'm a gracious host and I never forget, I'm going to ask you, what are you drinking tonight? Tonight, I am drinking Collective Arts uh, Life in the Clouds. And I am drinking it out of my, I just grabbed it out of my cupboard. I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to blindly grab one and that'll be my mug for tonight. And any mug I blindly grab is going to be Civil War mug. So it is my Sherman staff mug. And of course, that mug has Oliver Otis Howard on it. Oh, Shock, big surprise. It's always and fun to watch you try to get him into this. Howard has something to say about everything, apparently. Oh, I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does. And anyway. what are you drinking? Oh, thanks for asking, Mary. I am drinking, it is called um, it is called Dandelion, and it is from Berkshire Brewery here in the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and I'm drinking it out of my Zoe Deschanel mug, because it's the great Zoe Deschanel, and for some reason, that's what I grabbed today. I'm not sure if you ever rode a horse or not, but if she did, she probably would have ridden it pretty well. But anyway, so today, speaking of horses, Mary, we are talking about Battle of Aldi. And we, yeah. I don't know if you remember, it's been a whole week. But since we last talked, you know, we talked about the Battle of Brandy Station, mm -hmm. okay? It yeah. was a cavalry battle that showed both sides that the Union Cavalry under Alfred Pleasanton, who was in Joe Hooker's army of the Potomac, had closed that perceived gap between Robert E. Lee's horsemen under the that flamboyant general, Jeb Stewart, right? Yeah. Despite the fact that Brandy Station was sort of kind of a Confederate victory, theoretically, the results of the battle were, were embarrassing to Stuart, mm -hmm. uh, personally, uh, within his own army, as well as the Southern press. It was a victory, I think, but it was like just but by this tiny margin. And what you have is this Confederate cavalry that, as we said in the previous episode, you know, in 1862, they managed to ride all around McClellan completely humiliate the army of the potomac but then at brandy station you have this union cavalry that is not quite there yet but they have really improved and they are starting to give the confederates a run for their money they have somehow come out of left field and it's like holy shit these guys are actually good i mean buford does really well here run dmg greg as you call him he does really well here too. Pleasanton is, and as we're going to see going into Aldi, it's really like you have to question why he is in charge of the cavalry with, especially what happens at Aldi, that he has, but Pleasanton's lucky he has really great subordinates. Oh, he does. And, and you mentioned how well the Union cavalry caught up. It wasn't, it was not missed on the Confederates either that this gap was so close. No, it wasn't. You know, I mean, after the battle, Captain William Blackford, okay, mm -hmm. he's going to serve as an engineer on Stuart's staff. And he says after the battle, the improvement of the enemy's cavalry was enormous and their horse artillery was a match for Stuart's own. It wasn't a situation. It's like, well, it's going to whistle by the graveyard here. They're pretty good. No big deal. They, they all had that moment of this perceived gap that they had this advantage and was really the only advantage they really had. They saw that dissipating. You know, regardless, Robert E. Lee's army was going to be moving north, and they were so desperately needing those supplies we mm -hmm. talked about last yeah. time. 
specifically from Pennsylvania and those farms and those endless supplies that seemed to be there that Lee needed to sustain his army for the rest of 1863, as Virginia was as barren as the Cleveland Indians trophy case at that point. <gasps> Three years of battling in the state left the farmlands empty for the horses and the men, so you can see how important it was to get out of there. Oh, my God. Bucker. Um, anyway, yes, like going into Pennsylvania was a gigantic shopping trip for, for Lee. This is him going to the Costco, which I mean, I don't know why anyone want to, would want to go to the Costco. But anyway, you know, he's go he's going there because he needs supplies. But, you know, kind of the kind of a side effect of this. And it's not this is not why he went there. And we really want to make that clear. It's he's not meaning to threaten Harrisburg or Washington or or any of these cities. Right. He's he's just going in there because he needs the supplies. But he knows also of the morale that how it's going to affect the northerners right that it's going to be like oh shit lee's here kind of thing do something Lincoln. well there was a lot of politics going into it but you know but going real quick going back to brandy before we put that one to bed here a couple of things we talked about it you know it cost lee a day because he had mm -hmm. to stick around to fight this battle but since cal since stewart's cavalry you know remained intact it did allow lee to continue to move north uh, northward um, undetected by Hooker, who was still sitting around trying to figure out what Lee's plan was. You know, keeping Hooker in the dark was a real coup by Lee that often goes unnoticed by people who started the Gettysburg campaign. Now, when we talked about Brandy last, last week, one thing we didn't talk about was as good as Pleasanton and his cavalry did, the one thing they did fail to do was locate the fact that Lee's army was in Culpeper. They yeah. couldn't do it. As they started to move, the rebel second corps under Richard Yule is going to lead the, lead the march on June 10th. This is the day after Brandy. They're already yeah. on the move. They're going to be going along with that cavalry brigade under Albert Leroy Jenkins, like to call him. And they're going to enter the Shenandoah Valley through that Chester Gap on June 12th. So they're moving. Yule's men are going to move 45 miles in just two days. That's how quick they're going to be going. On the 13th, Yule's corps is going to approach Winchester, while Hooker continued to do nothing. Now, we don't know not to, not to digress here, but Ewell is going to rout Robert Milroy's army there, garrison Winchester we talked about, which is going to result in the Second Battle of Winchester, mm -hmm. which was that embarrassing loss considering the Union Cavalry Commander Pleasanton reported that same day that there were no rebs in the valley while this is going on. So it goes to show what a fantastic job Lee and his cavalry did by screening the army, mm -hmm. because they didn't know. The first corps under James Longstreet uh, is going to follow Ewell's men north with Jeb Stewart's cavalry, basically screening their movements is how they're going to do it. Now, Longstreet's corps is going to set out for Ashby's and Snicker's Gap with Stewart's cavalry covering their right flank to hide their movements and to protect them from, a, from attack. But when Lee's mass exodus from Virginia was taking place, Hooker did nothing. Despite the fact that Lincoln knew the Rebs mm -hmm. were on the move, that they were spread out, and that they were vulnerable to attack. No, they, they were. And Lincoln is putting a lot of pressure <laughs> on Pleasanton to do stuff. And Hooker is getting frustrated with him, too, be, over what's happened, be, over this inability to locate Lee's army in Northern Virginia and break through the cavalry screen. And it's been brilliant by Lee and Stuart what they are doing. And so on, on June 16th, Hooker said to Lincoln, you may depend upon it. We can never discover the whereabouts of the enemy or divine his attention so long as he fills the country with a cloud of cavalry. 
we must get through that to find him. You know, Hooker is telling him, like, we need to break through Stuart. Pleasanton is the one that has been charged with this, and he's just unable to do it. And and Halleck is not happy with how the intelligence gathering has been going. But really, is, is Halleck happy with anything at all? Oh, the thing is, is, you know, we talk about Hooker, and he, you know, he doesn't know what's going on. He finally does get moving on, on the 13th, a couple days before the 60th. Yeah. He's going to get moving. And Lincoln's poking him like that meme saying, do something. I know. You yeah, know? he is. And I mean, and 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 Hooker and and Halleck are doing it too. And Halleck says to Pleasanton that Hooker relies upon you with your cavalry force to give him information of where the enemy is, his force and his movements. Drive in pickets if necessary and get us information. It is better that we should lose men than to be without knowledge of the enemy as we seem to be now. This is Halleck to Pleasanton. So he's basically saying, you know what? If men have to die, like just yeah. just figure out where the fuck Stuart is and leave. The, the, find I mean, out. Hooker's Hooker's gonna finally get going. Is he's going to move his men to a position near the Orange and Alexandria Railroad between the town of Centerville and a place called Catlett Station, which is not far from Washington. Because again, primarily, you know, he wants to defend Washington still, which is still Lincoln's primary fear and his goal. But that Hooker's March was a tough one. I mean, it was hot as hell. It was, you know, thick clouds and dust covered his men. You had hundreds of guys collapsing as they were walking. I mean, it was, it was a forced march. You know, you know, Hooker, you know, realized at this point that more importantly, he lost the initiative to Lee again. This is just like Chancellorsville again. He lost the initiative. Hooker's army is going to reach a place called Dumfries, Virginia, which yeah. is about 30 or so miles south of Washington. And this is going to be on June 17th. It's to finally go while hooker has his head's head on the cloud word okay I mean, <laughs> the cloud, he, the he, nice that my beer is life in the clouds right now oh god i'm telling you <laughs> but he has no idea what these plans are in this constant pissing match between lincoln and halleck and hooker it's a, this you know, it's this weird triangle that is going on and i mean hooker is very annoyed with halleck you know and this is all going on behind the scenes during the gettysburg campaign and hooker sends a message to Lincoln. You have long been aware, Mr. President, that I have not enjoyed the confidence of the major general commanding the army, meaning Halleck. And I can assure you so long as this continues, we, we may look in vain for success. So it's like Hooker's basically saying, cut out the middleman here and stop well, but then, and stop this. The, it's true. But even his own men know something's wrong. I mean, yeah. Dan, Dan Butterfield, Hooker's chief of staff, who also wrote bugle calls, you know, you know, he had that Butterfield, quote, goes, Butterfield, we, cannot, we cannot go boggling around until we know what we are going after. So he's like, what the hell are we freaking doing? General Marcina Patrick, who is Hooker's provost marshal, he's going to say, General Hancock is running the marching. This is interesting. General Hancock is running the marching while Hooker has the role of a subordinate. He acts like a man without a plan and is entirely at loss of what to do, how to match the enemy or counteract his movements. So what's that telling him? That his subordinates are taken over because Hooker is not doing a damn thing. It's not like the Army of Northern Virginia is not without their issues too. That's what's frustrating about this from the Lincoln perspective, okay? We're not going to get too, too much into it here, but suffice it to say, Lee has a tough time communicating with his men, especially Jeb Stewart about the intent of his Operation North too. Stewart had his ego slapped around at Brandy Station, okay? Mm -hmm. It was humiliated in the Southern press. And that's an important thing considering whose Jeb was and where he was at that time of his career. Perhaps as a way to basically make him feel better for him to massage his ego, Lee's going to give Stewart a lot of responsibility on this campaign. Now, Stewart was instructed, like we said before, to guard the rebel flanks and maintain contact with Yule and collect information about the Union's whereabouts while gaining supplies, okay? Mm -hmm. That's a lot of stuff to do all at one time. It's impossible to do all of them. But to that end, Stewart was, was going to be given this task primarily to redeem himself. So 
he's going to have to maintain control of those of two roads that ran from the mountains towards Manassas and Hooker's army. This would be the Little River Turnpike as yeah. well as Snickersville Turnpike. Both these roads lead to a pass that is going to lead directly to Lee's army. So they're important roads. Both of these roads intersected east of the mountains in a small town called Aldi, which made the town extremely important from a logistical standpoint, no doubt. That's the important of it. These roads are macadamized which means they're easier to get across. You have Ashby and Snickers, and it's critical that the Confederates protect these. But Hooker and Pleasanton also recognize how important Aldi is and the roads leading westward from it. Like they realize like, oh shit, this is how we could find where they they are. If the Union Cavalry can make its way through Aldi, Middleburg, Upperville, then look through the gaps in the Blue Ridge Mountains, they can see what the Army of Northern Virginia is up to. And that sounds like a lot to do, to, to get to do that. And Halleck and Hooker realize that in order to confirm what Lee is up to, they have to somehow get into these mountain gaps, which is what Jeb Stewart is protecting right now. And they need it to look into the Shenandoah Valley. And that is where the Battle of Aldi comes about is because of this needing this information. They absolutely need to know what mm-hmm. Lee is up to right yeah, and that quote you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, he's going to get that order directly from uh, from Hooker. The one you said about, you know, better to lose a few guys. Yeah. But Hooker's basically telling him, listen, you have enough men. You got plenty of guys. You're smart enough. You're intelligent enough. You're attractive enough. So just go ahead and do it. He's telling them. And if you're going to crack a couple of eggs along the way, you got to do it because yeah. this is important. Yeah, it's basically no, saying but- like no matter who how much we have to sacrifice we need to know where they are you know which right. is i was like holy shit really <laughs> so pleasanton we talked a lot about pleasanton last time and he's yeah. so, you know he was not the most respected guy in his own army he he was somebody like we said before one of the more underrated incompetence in the union army there's no question about it but when he's going to get this order he is going to task david mcmurtry greg in his division that's how he's, he's going to put in charge to go towards that town of aldi where those two roads intersect. Now, Greg is going to use Custer, George Custer, to help join him on this adventure of his, right? So mm-hmm. at the head of Greg's 2,000-man column was going to be a brigade of Judson Kilpatrick, we talked about him, which consisted of the 1st Mass, the 2nd 4th New York, as well as the 6th Ohio. Now, also with Kilpatrick is going to be the horse artillery mm-hmm. under the command of Alance and Randall, yep. who's going to have batteries E and G from that 1st U.S. Cavalry. Unbeknownst to anyone on the Union side, especially those riding towards all that the Confederate cavalry was also on the move, riding east as well towards Aldi. Yeah, they are. They're they're headed towards there too because they realize they have to protect those roads. The Union can get past them, then they're going to have a really tough time with that. Yeah, with them. and who are the, who are the rebels? Have the rebels are going to put this their their brigade under Thomas Munford, mm-hmm. who's running that brigade for Fitzhugh Lee, who's who's absent. He'll have the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth Virginia cavalry. You even remember that one. Mary, you can even, even you can remember that one. One through five, okay? One, two, he three, also had, four, five. I can count. Yeah, you gotta go. He also <laughs> had some artillery as well under the command of James Breathitt, okay? Now, you can see where this one's going, okay? Like the famous battle that took place a couple weeks later, this is a battle that's going to meet on the march. These guys are going to literally bump yep. into each other uh, as they go. Needless to say, neither side expected to meet each other. Around 2 o'clock in the afternoon on the 17th of June, this vanguard of the Union Army, which is going to be the 2nd New York, is going to ride into the picket line, hazardous too, of the 2nd Virginia, okay, mm-hmm. which would be just east of Aldi, uh, and who was guarding that intersection of the Little River Turnpike along the, along the, uh, the Carolina Road, right? Now, this is going to be a shock to Pleasanton. Who thought Stuart was still far away in the Blue Mountains? This has like, you know, I'm thinking back to Brandy Station where Pleasanton thought Stuart was elsewhere. <laughs> 
as well. Well, it just shows you how important, how what a good enough job that they were doing yeah. and how bad that it was. You know, these New Yorkers, okay, they're going to take advantage of these numbers right off the bat, and they're going to use just two companies. They're going to push back that second Virginia, and they're going to drive them right through the town. Now, as they do further west, that second New York is going to ride right into the waiting arms of Thomas Rosser yeah. and those fifth Virginians, those cavalrys that we talked a lot about Brady Station, those hard-fighting guys. Now, this is going to result in one of those classic cavalry battles with the, the sabers clanging and all that stuff. It was the New Yorkers who got beaten and driven back east through the town of where they came. Now, literally, the men got booted out from the town, the horse they rode in on. Think about it. That's exactly <laughs> what happened, that right? That is. So, it is. Now, Munford is immediately going to begin placing his men along both turnpikes at this point. Mm -hmm. Now, he put the 1st, the 4th, and the 5th Virginia, along with Breathed's artillery on a ridge that covered Ashy's Gap Road, while putting the 2nd and 3rd Virginia just north to block the Snickers Gaps, right? Now remember, this is just after Brandy Station, and the Rebs knew that fighting the Union Cavalry was no longer a two-foot putt here, Yeah. right? They knew that, so that the Munford had, was, was beginning to show that initial levels of respect, right, for the Union Cavalry. Thomas Rosser, he's coming in that 5th Virginia, is going to post that company of about 50 guys under Captain Reuben Boston along a ridge about 500 yards in front of the Confederate line. Yeah. This group is pretty much discovered pretty quickly by the Union, okay? There's 50 guys who are going to be 500 yards out in front of the line. Randall, from the, the Union uh, artillery, is going, to begin to is going to begin the Battle of Aldi by shelling Boston's guys, okay, with those guns from that first RUS artillery we talked about. Rebel artillery on a breath did return fire. So it starts with an artillery duel, but those rebel guns quickly get moved pretty back pretty quick. Now next, Boston's guys are going to get attacked by members of the 2nd New York we talked about. But they were pushed back pretty easily, inflicting heavy casualties on these New Yorkers. As you know, people from New York always fall facing men under Boston, Mary. And it wasn't even October, which is amazing, but I digress. Okay. So there you go. Life imitates art, right? But you can see how this one's going to start. And right off the bat, the union's going to get the upper hand. They fight back pretty hard and they keep pursuing them and going on. At one point, during the battle, the rebels were advancing along this road, and one of them was swinging his saber in the air and saying, down with Massachusetts hirelings, down with the sons of bitches. I'm, it's a, it was blanked out in the, the report I read. This is a report from Private Oliver Downing of Company G, 1st Massachusetts Cavalry. And he said, I always disliked being called hard names and concluded I would get out of range of such talk, but my comrade, Old Harvey, as we called him, was of a different mind. He said that reb had too much to say, and with that body of probably 300 horsemen nearly on us picked up his carbine that he had laid down that might more conveniently work on the barricade and putting on a percussion cap deliberately took aim and fired when old harvey fired at a man he did not usually have much more to say and that rebel did not prove an exception his days for cutting down massachusetts hirelings were ended and we are going to see old harvey mentioned again throughout this episode a couple more times but that is one story i found from the first massachusetts at the oh, beginning of this battle plus one for old mass exactly yeah he's like you know the the rebels are like you know we're gonna get those massachusetts guys and old harvey's like fuck you you're not you can't you can't beat us exactly but but while this is all going down with uh with boston in the, the second new york guys kilpatrick is going to see this okay yeah and he's going to send in his sixth ohio sending regiments in piecemeal this is going to be a repeating thing for kilpatrick he sends guys in piecemeal that's, that's why he's called problem, kill calvary okay? right right this is going to cost him in this case that sixth ohio 
they were finally able to handle, handle Boston's company, uh, and they were able to capture most of those Virginians in that fight. Fun fact about this, this was the first time that a full company under Stuart was ever captured on the battlefield. It was right here. Wow. Boston's guys went down. So for his troubles, real quick, Reuben Boston, we're going to talk about him real quick. For his troubles, he's going to be captured and spend the next nine months of his life in Union Prison. He'll be released only to face a court-martial of all things by the back in Virginia for what happens. And he got acquitted. You know what they did? They blamed Rosser. So they let him off the hook and they blame Ross. Oh my it. God. So there you go. Okay. So another Boston wins again. He's going to end up back with the fifth Virginia. Okay. And now he's a colonel and he's going to be killed at, um, at a play at the Battle of High Ridge in, Far- in Farmville. We talk about that. And during that, Lee's attempted escape at the fall of Richmond. Many think that Reuben Boston on the Confederate side was the last Confederate officer killed in the American Civil War. That's right. I've heard that so, before. So very well, very good. Now, Boston's surrender ended that fight along that along that Ashby's Gap Turnpike. And the fight at this point is going to kind of shift north um, along that Snickersville Turnpike. And this time it's going to involve those men again, Mary, that you just mentioned, that first Massachusetts. Yep. Yeah, and they're going to keep going along that road. And they are now at the main Confederate line is going to be at the Fur House. Right. Road. And yeah. Kilpatrick, for the most part, is now, is now very aware the Confederate cavalry is in his front. And so he's going to end up bringing up the rest of his brigade as well as that battery that we mentioned before under Randall. Yeah, the first U.S. artillery. Right. right. Uh, they're going to set up on that ridge line near their Snickersville Turnpike. Now, for his for his cavalry, he basically deploys them as, as they came in. Yeah. The order they came in, and say, fine. So the second New York came, next is going to be that 6th Ohio, which is going to join forces right along that Little River Turnpike. Next to arrive is going to be the 4th New York, who is going to support Randall's guns with that first Massachusetts cavalry mentioned. Now, it's a fun story. Around this time, Custer, George Custer, okay, is going to be riding along with Greg along that Little River Turnpike. Custer apparently is wearing some big straw hat. Oh, like yeah. Like a Cinco de Mayo. Yeah. yeah. Thing, okay? <laughs> this is, and, is this the horse where he falls off? Yeah. And so he's riding along. <laughs> And something happens. The horse goes to get a drink unexpectedly, okay? And somehow Custer gets thrown off the horse right into the water. And it must have been hilarious for his men to see. It just had to have been. I'm picturing it with a sombrero. Exactly. <laughs> it's just... You know? And so that, that's how it was. He probably tried to look cool getting out. With La Cucaracha playing. Oh, there we go. Band playing. There you go. You know? But... It... So that battle is going to shift north on the morning of June 17th. First Massachusetts, we're going to talk a little bit about them because we have to, okay? Yep. Um, we got some little Harvey here. The first mass counted 294 men as they advanced west along the, with the rest of Greg's men yep. uh, in search of these rebels, okay? Two companies of the cavalry from the first Massachusetts under Major Henry Higginson are going to ride along that Snickersville Road. Unbeknownst to them, they're walking like right into an absolute disaster. Yeah, because it's like a, it, it's an, if you look at if you Google it, like blind curve at LD, you can see it. It is this curve in the road that it's like, holy shit, they, there was no way they could see what was coming around them. It's a curve in the road, okay? It's bordered on both sides by high stone walls. Yeah. Okay, it's a perfect ambush place, okay? Along that bend and waiting for the Massachusetts men is going to be Confederates under the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th Virginia, yep. as well as Breathitt's cannons, okay? So they're they're walking right into it. Now, as these, these mass guys, these horsemen approach this bend on the road, they find themselves being fired upon by point-blank range by carbines and cannon, friggin' everything, right? With each new wave of Higgins horsemen that, that make it around that bend, they're going to see dead and dying men and horses just lying there waiting yep. for them. 
them on this road as this rebel fire is just raining down on them. You can just imagine this, you know, but they have, but they have to keep coming. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually where old Harvey, he ends up getting wounded here and some rebel starts taking him behind enemy lines at that point, like leading him away. But this is also when the first main is arriving on the battlefield too. Right, they're 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 coming, they're coming. You know, uh, but just talk more about this Massachusetts mm-hmm. thing because it, it's just an, it's people don't talk enough about this because it's really it's really brutal. it's brutal. It's very it's hand to hand. Like at the end of this, like very few are going to manage to escape it. Out of the two ninety four, okay, one hundred ninety eight are going to be casualties. That's sixty seven percent. Quick math, Mary. Twenty seven okay. men managed to escape. Okay, that this is going to be the highest single day uh, percentage of casualties in, in, in one day in a cavalry in the American Civil War. Yep. 67% is pretty crazy high for infantry. It is. Cavalry, it's unthinkable. So it's the, it's the most single worst day in the cavalry of any regiment in the war. One Massachusetts trooper is going to say afterwards, my poor men were just slaughtered and all we could do was just stand still and be shot down. So they, because you mentioned too, they're stuck. They're in, they're in this, this Well, yeah, it's just this curve is, and again, like if you Google it and I did, I had to see how this curve, it is this crazy, crazy curve. Like, why would you go around that? And it, it's, you understand why what happens here happens because of this, it's a blind curve. It is. And again, Kilpatrick's going to, is going to, is going to attack piecemeal again. He's yeah. going to send in more troops this time from the fourth New York. Okay. These New Yorkers are going to, who got spent up and they couldn't dislodge those, those dismounted Virginians uh, who would just protect them at those stone walls on both sides along, along that stickers, stickersville pike. So this is where the Colonel of the fourth New York, one of the great names, of the American civil war, Mary Luigi Palma to Chesnola. Okay. We got to talk about him real quick. Okay. <laughs> Luigi. He's going to be, he's going to be captured during this part of the fight and he's going to end up at Libby prison in Richmond. Now we, we could talk a lot about what he did afterwards. Cause he had a colorful, colorful history with, <laughs> bodies and digging stuff up. Archaeology. He did, he, he, like, I, like I told people, I did it all for science. That's what Arch- he did. Not, Ar- quote unquote archaeology. Exactly, exactly. But he's going to be caught here, but he's actually going to get the Medal of Honor for this. Okay, so we'll talk him down the road a little bit with Chesnola, but but um, but he's somebody who um, we're going to mention. Now, the rebels knew at this point they're inflicting heavy casualties on that Union horseman at this point, right? Thomas Munford is going to counterattack here, and he's going to send his 3rd Virginia uh, under Thomas Owen. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now with little reinforcements to stop them, Owen's going to roll right through them. Okay. He's going to capture Randall's battery as well as that important intersection of that road we talked about that Stewart desperately wanted to protect and the union desperately wanted to control. So now they, now the, the worms turn and now the Confederates are looking damn pretty good. Right. What does Kilpatrick do? He's going to be in a panic at this point. Uh, He's yeah. going to be in a full pucker effect situation. Okay. Yeah. And he's, you know, but he's fortunate. He's he's going to get lucky here. Okay, he's fortunate because on the field that was arriving was under the brigade of J. Irvin Gregg, who happens to be the cousin of Run DMG, yep. Dave McMurtry Gregg. Now, in the lead of this of this brigade is going to be the first main. Yep. Okay, his guys now, from Brandy Station that he could always count on. These are those hard fighting fishermen and woodsmen and these guys who just don't listen to shit but they just like to fight. They are just like Newfoundlanders from Canada. That's exactly who they are. But they these guys and this is they've been fighting well. They were at first Winchester. They were at second Bull Run. They were at Antietam. They were at Fredericksburg. This is a battle tested group okay and these guys what they could they could fight and they could fight with anybody right. They were just big lumbering guys. Mm -hmm. 
they're now part of, of um, David Gregg's second division and their brigade is now under the aforementioned uh, J. Urban Gregg, right? The regiment's gonna be commanded by a guy named Curvin, uh, Colonel, uh, Colonel Calvin Sanger Dowdy. So that's three times mm. quick. He's from Dover, Maine, okay? Um, the first Maine is gonna be organized in Augusta, Maine on October 31st, 1861. And their initial days were entertaining to say the least, okay? Now, when, the, when they first began to train Okay, John Hodgson, okay, he was the adjutant general of Maine, found it difficult to watch the drill with a straight face. It was that bad. Oh, okay? my God, it's so, like stripes. Well, see, unlike their peers in the South, Mainers didn't ride horses, okay? They, they used to use horses to pull wagons mm-hmm. and, and sleighs, right? They weren't riding these damn things. Many had to learn to ride them on snow and ice when they were trained, okay? They had to learn them on the fly, Many troopers reported it was embarrassing learning to ride while being watched by many pretty girls in Augusta. So people <laughs> would come out and watch these guys. So picture you're trying to – there's people lying in the streets watching, and you're trying to ride a horse, and it's like you're one of those bull rides, the carnival, trying to hold on to this damn thing. And you're going to be in the cavalry. So it goes to show how far they came now by summer of 86 rather. The first Maine had quickly earned that reputation of being tough on the battlefield. In the Valley of 1862, okay, Confederate Turner Ashby we talked about said to a prisoner that they caught from the 1st Maine, you are of the 1st Maine Cavalry, aren't you? A fine set of fellows, I've met no such cavalry. You are as stubborn as mules. I couldn't move them a damned inch without shelling them. Banks, General Banks, owes his escape to that force, okay? Now, these are the guys who couldn't learn to ride, and now they're having Turner Ashby telling them basically, yeah. you guys say Banks' ass. Yeah. <laughs> so again, this was the A-team for cavalry at this it point. Was. So before they get to LD, they had a 20-mile ride from Manassas Junction. And it is like hot AF. Like it's 94 degrees at this battle. It is so hot. They reach LD in the afternoon and the fighting has already started. Lieutenant Henry C. Hall, who's part of the first main, said Kilpatrick looked like a ruined man <laughs> when he rode up with his route at Calvary. So he was waiting for the first main. Um, he was shook he was a little bit shook uh kilpatrick asked what regiment it was and when the men shouted they were from the first maine apparently kilpatrick was like all just electric according to hall he just said forward first maine you saved the field at brandy station and you can do it here and so he's going to order dowdy and his men to save randall's guns that they had lost that were in jeopardy right at that very moment the men of company h of the first man are going to charge, followed by Company D, mm-hmm. screaming and flashing their sabers as they rode down the hill uh, to meet those rebels who were basking in the glory of that slaughter of my poor first Massachusetts Mary, right? Now, Colonel Doughty was on the far left of this regiment as he rode along the front along with Kilpatrick, okay? Mm-hmm. Who they quickly cleared the rebels from their front. Along with the first Maine was Custer again. He's always around, apparently, yep. with his big straw hat. And he also knew this charge is probably going to be the one that's going to settle the battle. Dowdy's guys are going to hit the Virginians really hard and drive Munford's Virginians all the way back to their original position, and they're going to secure that critical intersection again that both sides so desperately wanted to fight over. Now, the Mainers hit the Virginians with everything they had, fought with pistols and sabers and, you know, tridents, you name it. They (laughs) had it, okay? (laughs) And four four of the first main companies. Now, here's the thing. This is where it kind of goes off a little bit. There are going to be four companies in the first main um, that are going to remain near the guns, okay? Well, Kilpatrick is going to lead the other two 
uh, right as those rebel lines are breaking, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's going to be around dusk. It's going to get nighttime. Nothing good happens at dusk, okay? Um, And, you know, you mentioned Hall. He's a first lieutenant from Company H. And he's talking about how men are intermingled in the dusty darkness and where it was scarcely possible to distinguish friend from foe, right? So you can see that in this fog of battle now, you're having a tough time seeing who the F is who now, right? Well, he almost slashed a man from his own company when he was well, in battle. Well, he probably was mean. He probably deserved that. Who knows what the hell he did. But, <laughs> but, but the other, those other two companies, right, from the first Maine who were ordered to charge by Kilpatrick and Doughty, they're chasing after them now, right? So you got four who are going to stay back at the guns, and you got two who are charging, okay? Now, um, riding along with Doughty is how, okay? And, and, and the thing about him is, is if, you, if you study the first Maine or you study anything with Maine, you know, William Howe of Company G there, he, he was somebody who wrote a lot of the state history of Maine in the Civil mm-hmm. War. Um, and he he's somebody who, if, you, if you're going to study Maine, you're going to read Howe because he's that's who he is. Yeah. Now, he will be personally be there with that 1st Maine Cavalry, and he's going to later serve with the 1st Maine Sharpshooters. He's going to spend a little time with the guy with the mustache from the 20th Maine. So he's going <laughs> to get around a little bit, okay? He's going to. Now, going back to Aldi here, they all rode west down that Snickersville Turnpike where they're going to hit that Rebel Cavalry, right? Now, to the right of the field, to the right of them was a field, and that's where Dowdy was riding, okay? Howe's going to describe that there were a few scattered men still in the open field, except for a lone horseman charging up the lane, leaping obstacles that lay in his path. Guess who that guy was? That's uh, Custer. It was- it was Doughty. Doughty. Pay, pay, okay. pay attention here, okay? Yeah. Try to try to tell the story. But no, it happened to How is going to realize that it's Doughty, okay? Riding on his big white horse. And as soon as the Union Rebel Cavalry, they're all intermingled. They're all fighting that line of smoke. Now, Doughty, Doughty is going to ride right to the front, yelling, where is the head of this regiment? And right as the Rebel artillery on the hill stopped firing. And this, they just stopped firing, okay? Doughty is going to point to the summit. Okay, and he's going to begin to ride up the slope through an opening in the fence with Howe following him. Okay, so the guns have stopped. Okay, and they don't know what the hell's going on. They're going to ride along a road on the side of the hill that was full of both Union and Rebel dead. Okay, from earlier in the day, and on the left of of that road is going to be a stone wall that crossed another stone wall about fifty yards in their front. Right now. Dowdy's going to be riding hard with his sword raised, and Howe is going to be doing his best to keep up with them. Just picture this. Dowdy's going full banana. Yeah, he's going crazy. He's going crazy here. Howe's going to say he's going to see Dowdy turn his horse to the right and go into an open field. Now, Howe says this is the last time he's going to see Dowdy alive. Let's give away the ending here, but Dowdy ain't going to make it, Mira, okay? No. How was going to write uh, after the war? Just when, uh, j- just then, a volley came from behind the stone walls, and the colonel fell. So those stone walls that they thought were vacant, they were riding towards. Is all of a sudden these rebs stand up and they fire. Okay. Um, now he admitted at this point that he and Horace hauled ass to get the hell out of there. <laughs> How? Okay. He didn't stick around to see what happens. Okay. Um, in the woods. Howe is going to ride full speed. Nothing. He's going to make it back to the woods. Who's he going to find? Those other four companies of the first main that were not part of the charge that stayed back with the guns. Now, a guy named Major Stephen Boothby, a guy from Portland. Oh, okay, I love Boothby's story. Okay, he's going to ask if he knew where Colonel Dowdy was. <clears throat> and Howe's going to say, he is yonder on those heights dead, I believe. 
How does it know? But he thinks he's dead, but he yeah. didn't want to stick around to find out. Yeah, and Boothby's really interesting. He's got long blonde hair, gold room glasses, but weighed a ton in a fight. And his language would become exceedingly forceful during a fight as well. When Kilpatrick knew Boothby was on the field, he said, God bless you, Boothby. Hold them, hold them. And Hall recalled that the very air was blue with flashing words that fell from fearless Boothby's lips. Yeah, Boothby's going to order those four companies yeah. to charge to help the other two. Um, the companies D and H. So the four detached first main companies are going to be led by Colonel Charles Smith. And they all went in, okay? And they quickly got on the rebel left and cleared that field. Now, how described the charge. He said, the most irreversible charge that is ever known was made by the old first main cavalry. Inside two minutes, the life of this indomitable hero was avenged, as Doughty. The heights captured in Colonel Doughty's body recovered from the point where I last saw him alive, right? Mm. So Howe's going to go on to write again that the area where Doughty fell was a terrible hellhole, which was captured alone as a regiment, okay? So with those extra four companies now, they're able to kind of push the, the Rebs back now. When they found Doughty's body, he'd been shot twice in the armpit, the bloody armpit. <laughs> and the, the, the bullets, they said, must have entered his heart at that point. Oh, God. Um, recovering his body was a big deal for these Maine guys, yeah. okay? And they mm -hmm. made sure it made it all the way back to Maine, where it's going to be buried a couple of days later on the 27th um, at, at Dover Cemetery. And, and so they, they made sure they wanted to take care of him. Now, by now, it's about 8 o'clock, and it's pretty dark. Munford and, and that rebel cavalry, they're, they're going to withdraw towards Middleburg, which is about five miles or so west of Aldi. Yep. Munford is later going to say that he wasn't withdrawing, that he was told by Stewart to go. Well, he didn't want to get blamed for the withdrawal. Well, that's the thing is like apparently Stewart got scared because um, – so what's happening – well, what is happening at Aldi, Duffy, who we've seen at Brandy Station, is headed towards Middleburg. And Stuart recalls them because he realizes they're in his rear. So they're getting up a Savannah. And this is Colonel Alfred Duffy and the first Rhode Island Cavalry. And this was Pleasanton's only effort at reconnaissance um, during the Battle of Aldi is this. And the first Rhode Island manages to go through Thoroughfare Gap. They encountered the Confederate pickets at around 930 in the morning um, they are going to surprise Stuart, and it's around 4.30 that Duffy and his men encounter Stuart, and Harris Van Bork of Stuart's staff is there, and they retreat. Um, Duffy's men end up barricading themselves in Middleburg, and he's, like, messaging back to Pleasanton. He's like, um, could you send reinforcements? We've got Middleburg. We're, we're finally figuring out where they are. Um, but by evening, Stuart ordered the 4th and 5th North Carolina Cavalry to go back to Middleburg and retake the town. Um, and Sean Bliss's command is also approaching Middleburg at this point. And there's very fierce fighting here during the evening. And Duffy manages, he's very outnumbered, and he's like, you know what, can't do it. And the battle finally ends when it gets dark. So what happens, and this is going into the next day, but it's worth mentioning, um, Duffy is like basically every man for himself. Um, and they just kind of, they, they boot it. And 200 end up getting captured of these Rhode Islanders. Uh, Duffy, however, manages to escape over the Bull Run Mountains at Hopewell Gap. And that's what is happening behind the scenes at the Battle of Aldi. This is why 
you know, there has to be this withdrawal and Stuart is, is very, Stuart, I think does get worried. He's like, holy shit, they're, <laughs> they're getting here. They're starting to approach. They could break through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, defeat, he's going to, his, and he's going to end up losing his gig for this. I mean, he's going to have yeah. enough of this with him. So yeah. the first round is, doesn't do him too well, but no. you know, the thing about it. So if you look, if you look at how it all plays itself up, Mumford's going to fall back. Okay. He's going to basically give up the field. So it's, it's so theoretically, it's at this, the battle of all these, a tactical victory for Alfred Pleasanton. If you think about it, yeah. his goal, his, you know, his goal by sending Greg to Aldi was, was to find Lee's location was not achieved though. So this is kind of Brainy Station 2.0 a little bit where, you know, you have some success, albeit they, they, they were the ones who vacated the dance floor Brandy, but they still didn't know Lee's location, which was the, was the primary goal. Yeah. So what does all the end up doing? It ends up costing the union 300 guys while the Rebs are going to lose just about, about about 100 or so. But in the end, Stewart's going to be able to use the use this battle and these battles that keep repeating itself, the ones we mentioned before, to show Pleasanton's cavalry, you know, um, to slow them down while denying them that that ability to locate Lee's army. Yeah, denying as them that victory. North. And, and that's the thing too, is, um, you know, people talk a lot about Jeb Stewart in the Gettysburg campaign, you know, he's running around yeah. getting his name on the papers. But at this point, he's doing what he has to do. And don't forget, too, he had a lot of responsibility, mm-hmm. you know, that we talked earlier in this episode about. So when he does finally break off, he is going to tear up the Beano Railroad, like yeah. I said before, as we get closer to the, the actual battle at Gettysburg. He's going to give Meade a lot of problems of communication, um, you know. But at this point, despite this Union quotation finger victory, Pleasanton was still unable to push through Aldi Gap into the Bull Run Mountains. So he was able to kind of get there a little bit, bump their heads, push them back. But he was no better than where he started. No, and it kind of makes you wonder what what would have happened had he sent, you know, Duffy makes it to Middleburg, which is, it's getting close, right? If, you know, he'd been, Pleasanton had been able to send reinforcements what might have happened with that would they have found out about it um you know that that's an interesting what if that i took away from this um you know amongst the union army i i don't know how well received aldi was afterwards uh, yes i managed to work howard into this episode somehow of course i did um howard said well aides and orderlies were skipping from corps to corps with great difficulty and danger to life through a country infested by mosby's guerrillas in order to keep us mutually informed and properly instructed, Pleasanton and Stuart were acting like two combatants playing and fencing with small swords. Neither wished to hasten the battle. Stuart took a stand at Middleburg, and Pleasanton cautiously approached, squirmished, and moved as if to turn Stuart by his left. Mm-hmm. Talk about some shade there. <laughs> like They're just playing with small swords, and meanwhile, the rest of the army's risking its life like that. You know, that that quote from Howard, I don't know if that speaks for the entire AOP, but that's a pretty strong quote um, no, about what, what happened. At, and he doesn't refer to it as LD. He just says, you know, June 17th, 18th, this is what is happening. Um, you know, two combatants playing and fencing with small swords. Yeah, well, a lot, of, a lot of shade, like you said, a lot of shade. So yeah, the Battle of Aldi, you know, if you go there today, you can still see much, but it still looks exactly the way it did before. Um, thanks to groups like the American Battlefield Trust, they pre- they preserved over 600 acres of that battlefield, um, including that curve in the road where the first Massachusetts has their monument. Yeah, that's um, an amazing um, and eerie place to look at. Like I've I've never been there in person, but I've looked at pictures of it, and it's like you can see that curve in the road, and 
understand why they were took so blindly. And as they came around that curve, you can kind of see it's like, oh, shit, there's all these dead horses and men. What's happening here? You know? Yeah. And you had to think they probably heard it, but it was a, it was a tough spot for them. Uh, First Massachusetts, you know, they made a big deal about erecting that monument. Um, and they, they, the veterans would go back there annually for the, for the reenactments and just the, the visits, the whole deal um, yeah. until obviously they died off. But people, people still take a peek at it right now. I mean, Aldi, for the most part, again, in the end, it, it showed, again, the maturity and the quick development by not just the 1st Maine or the 1st Mass, but all of the, of the cavalry regiments. And coming off Brandy Station, what it really did is it did show that Pleasanton's horsemen were, was not a fluke. Mm-hmm. They had arrived, and they were an equal foe to Stuart. Um, and, and so as it goes back and you look at these future battles, you can see how quickly they're going from Brandy to Aldi and then beyond into the point where Gettysburg that when they fight these cavalry fields, um, you can see how much success they have with guys mm-hmm. like Custer and people like that. When they went up against some of these, um, these Confederates uh, they went to. Yeah, so I think yeah. Aldi is an important one to study. I think it is. Oh, it is for sure. It's, you know, it's one of those ones where, I mean, you know, Brandy Station, Aldi are not exactly victories, but they're showing what the Union uh, Army of the Potomac Cavalry has now, how much they've improved. And the one story I wanted to to wrap up in this episode is that of Old Harvey, who I mentioned early earlier, who Private Downing of the First Massachusetts mentioned. Um, so Old Harvey almost gets captured um, during the battle. And this is what Private Downing had to say. The rebel who was driving Harvey to the rear was forced to surrender himself, and one of the main men ordered him off his horse and made him help Harvey on and took both both with him back to us. Because Harvey had been wounded, um, so he needed to be on the horse. And Downing goes on to say, Harvey recovered from his wounds and leaving the hospital, rejoined the regiment, served his term, re-enlisted, was again wounded and captured and sent to Andersonville and died there. No braver man general or private ever carried a saver than harvey l vinton of g company first massachusetts so it just goes to show again you know the, the stories of these individual guys you know and for, for me personally it's a good one because you had really three new england regiments you got the first Rhode island you got the first mass and you got, yeah. you got the main guys we talk about so it's great to see that a place that really isn't known for cavalry is, is the ones who can help, you know, swing the hammer against the big boys from Virginia and places like that. Yeah. And so finding out I, about how hard fighting these new Englanders are this, like this old Harvey guy, which who knows how old he was, right? Like I, I need to look up a little bit more, but he dies at Andersonville. I mean, this is a guy that almost gets captured at Aldi and he recovers from his wounds and he's like, you know, he reenlists and he's like, fuck it, I'm going to do it again. And he dies at Andersonville. Like that is like, it's a, you know, I kind of, as I was reading Downing's report, I'm like, oh, I really want to know that Harvey's story is going to end really well. And it doesn't, unfortunately. No, it does. It does. Well, I think it's a good, good place to drop. I think all, all all these one that I think it's an, it's a great, it's a great study. It continues that that development of that cavalry Mm. um, and certainly shows that, um, that they are going to be a wrecking force and it shows for, you know, Lee's concerned about, about, the cavalry and and what's going to happen with it going forward he's going in probably what he sees as one of the biggest battles that he'll ever fight in which is going to be true but he also sees um 
that again, that big gap that he thought he had with the Union Cavalry is not the gap anymore. The objects no. in the mirror are closer than they appear, literally well, and figuratively, when it came to the cavalry. I think the gap is is really starting to close here, and you really see it happening first with the cavalry. Um, and I think post Gettysburg, Jeb Stuart is really not the same Jeb Stuart he was before. Um, and I think these battles are starting to show that that he's not. There's something that's happened that he's. You know, whether it's the union getting better or there's just something with him that is not what he was in 1862. It's probably a combination of both. I mean, Jeb is still Jeb. I mean, he's yeah, still, Jeb is still Jeb. He, he's still he's still as advertised. But I think the point is, you know, you get to a point where you think it's going to be easy and then it gets harder and harder yeah. and harder. Um, and and I, th- I think that's what it comes down to. But it should make you work harder as well on his part. And he, you know, he, he really did as well. But I think, um, despite the fact that Alfred Pleasanton was their leader, who was really kind of a kind of a mess, if you really mm-hmm. think about it, mm-hmm. um, his it's a case with, with his subordinates, Greg Buford, the guys we talk about, guys like Wesley Merrick, guys like that, right? Where it goes to show how well they're going to be. Um, speaking of guys like Dowdy, for example, and speaking of these other guys who came along, because really, what it does, it really, it just really, it tells the story of 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 the Union Cavalry as well as the Union Army, especially in when they get into Northern Territory are ready for them. And so there's, you know, going to get supplies and trying to beat the Union Army in their own soil and trying to do that. It just goes to show that in hindsight, you know, 50, you know, hindsight being our benefactor, you can see Gettysburg coming a mile away, oh, exactly. the way it's going to play yep. itself out. Yeah. But again, it's again, studying these things, they build on it. So now yep. after, you know, Brainy Station now doubled down with all the, um, the Confederates knew that they had a real force of cavalry in their in their front. They had to deal with. They had to be concerned about. Yeah. So I think it's a good story of just uh, of just the story being continued to grow and grow and grow. Yeah, so I think so too. So what's coming up? What's coming up for us next? So next episode we are going to be talking John Hunt Morgan. Finally. Finally. <laughs> no, we this didn't. week. Fucker. Um, and then we no, are no, going to no. be talking Tullahoma. Uh, we're going to talk Tullahoma <laughs> this year. Um, you know, just because no one talks Tullahoma at all. And we are going to soon be announcing our book, our next book club meeting, which uh, this time we are reading Kent Masterson's Brown meet at Gettysburg. So we will be announcing that meeting very soon. And then um, obviously our next round table um, in mid July, which we will be announcing the date for that soon, which we actually just had right before we recorded this episode, our latest round table, which is really awesome. So thanks everybody who joined us for that. It was a fun time. It does. It does. So looking forward to the next one. So Mary, we'll talk to you. So everybody have a great weekend. Thanks for jumping on with us. So we have our live again coming up this weekend, book club to your point down the road. A lot of fun stuff. Going to do a little John Hunt Morgan. I'm like another guy who has a tough time with the state of Ohio, just like me, Mary. We're going to talk about him next week. <laughs> yeah. So have a lot of a little bit of fun with him and, uh, and then some other stuff, Tullahoma, et cetera, et cetera, down the road. So any final words from you, Fincheru? Well, thank you to all of our listeners for your support these last 86 episodes. And thank you to you, Darren, for being an awesome co-host. You are the oh, best. Same to you. Same to you and the horse you rode in on, Mary. Fucker. Wow, and I thought for a second you were being kind of sweet. I was being complimentary. I was. The you horse you rode in on is not complimentary. I know, but it applies to the episode, so we're gonna have to roll with it. You got to deal with it. You got to deal with it. Okay, there you go. Uncle Mary, she's smiling. She knows. Okay. Anyway, all right. So off we go. Everyone have a great weekend. Hope it's it's cool where you are. Hope the heat breaks a little bit. 
Hopefully you have a finish the work week strong, have a great weekend. Uh, I say go Celtics, but my confidence is very low. We'll find mm-hmm. out by the time this drops, they'll probably be done. Go but Celtics. Who the hell knows? It's been a fun season. We've, we've enjoyed it anyway. So off we go. So everybody, thanks for listening again. We appreciate it. Have a great, safe weekend. And we will talk to you as we always say on the other side. See y'all later. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do